0: Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text today's message comes from the Old Testament reading of First Kings, as you heard a few moments ago. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, as you listen to the reading from First Kings, it's entirely possible that you thought it was maybe kind of boring. That as you heard the words read, your eyes started to glaze over Maybe you didn't think it was all that relevant to your life. With all the details about the temple of God, you know, the, the place where God dwelled, how it was constructed, and, you know, we didn't even share all of it with you. But maybe it would be more exciting if you imagine you're watching, say, a, a home improvement, renovation show. So, you already saw the hammer today, so I'll, and I'll get up my hammer today and... I'll get out my tape measure. Maybe, maybe you can pretend you're on house hunters. So you, you have this picture in your mind, right, of what's being described here, the, the imagery here as, as it's being given. So let's look at some of these details through the eyes of some builders. The temple was a total of 20 cubits long. Now you might just breathe by that word cubit and not study it. But a cubit was a distance. Anybody know what that distance is? The distance from your elbow to the tip of your finger. So about a foot and a half. So when we say that the temple was 60 cubits long, how long is that? 90 feet. All right. And it's 90 feet by 20 cubits. How long is that? 30 feet wide. Anybody know what that looks like? All right, I did it for you this morning, okay? Just so you guys know. All right. So if you can imagine that wall, it's one side right there. All right. 30 feet brings us to right about here. All right. So everything from me to that wall is how wide the temple was. 90 feet is a little bit harder, all right? So if you imagine here, this front here, you got to go all the way to just past the coat racks. All right, so that's your 90 feet right there. So and that's, that's as, you know, big dimensions as this temple is. And it was 30 cubits high, so how tall is that? 45 feet, so almost not quite twice as high as our ceiling is. Okay, so, so that, that's the picture. That's your picture of the temple. All right? And then there are some other pieces that we learn about from other parts of the Bible as it's being described. One of them being that Solomon's temple faced directly east. Now, that might not seem like anything significant, but it reminds us of something important when we go back to the Garden of Eden. Because that is where the cherubim and the flaming sword were, the east entrance to the garden. Now, if you remember, the garden was the perfect place where God dwelled with man, but then man ruined because of sin. And ever since that day, we're looking to get back to Eden. The temple faces eastward. And it's filled with palm trees and angels and gold, giving this image of an almost return to Eden. What it's also doing is saying, if you want to experience the presence, the nearness of God, remember where you lost it. We lost it in the garden. And we'll never experience God's nearness without dealing with the sin that spoiled it by the way, does anybody know what direction we're facing right now? That's <laughs> east, right? It's pretty cool, right? Almost like a return to Eden. Although, granted, it's just a little that way. But anyway, east. The next one is also not stated in our text, but it's in Second Chronicles, and it tells us that Solomon built his temple on Mount Moriah. Now, you may not m- remember Moriah, as it's only mentioned one other time in the Bible. But it's the place where God told Abraham to go sacrifice Isaac, the one whom his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And so Moriah reminds us of the sacrifice of Isaac, the sacrifice that didn't happen, because at the last minute God provided a substitute sacrifice. The ram took his place. Solomon's temple declared. That the way back to paradise with God would come through God's provision, a sacrifice. The sacrifice of a son that would take place near that exact same temple. And then outside the temple building, there would be two things in the inner court that would catch your eye. There was this large water basin. And that water was used to cleanse yourself. And so when you think about entering into God's presence, they washed themselves clean first. Also in the court was this bronze altar where they made the sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. Again, coming into God's presence, they received his forgiveness. They were made right with God through that animal, taking on the person's place, dying for their sins, atoning for them. Cleansing and sacrifice. And as you enter into that temple, the room to God's presence, that most holy place, the Holy of Holies, it was closed off. Only the high priest could enter that room once a year as God's representative for the people. And when he did, he made a sacrifice on behalf of himself and behalf of the people. So what you see is that in Solomon's temple— It was inviting God's people back to Eden. Back to paradise with God. Back to the presence of God. But the way to God was by dealing with your sin. And this could only come through cleansing and sacrifice. And of course, we know that Jesus, he is the one who deals with it. And it is through his sacrifice. When God dwelled among us as a man and God. And then he died for us. He is the one through the shedding of his blood. We are cleansed. And that allows us to come into God's presence because the curtain that separated the people from that Holy of Holies was torn in two when Jesus died, giving the people direct access to God. And Jesus' resurrection opens the door to heaven. So if we want to feel God's nearness, if we want God's presence with us, if we want God to dwell with us, we cannot do it without addressing the sin that separates us from him. We need to come and confess and admit our faults, understand that our sins deserve punishment. They deserve death. They deserve hell. And then we receive God's cleansing from the sacrifice that was provided for us through Jesus. Because Jesus knew that He was the only sacrifice that could cleanse us from all of our sin, that could lead us to Him, to His presence, to His dwelling place. Just like Solomon's temple. Now we know that, we heard last week, Solomon, he asked God for wisdom. And he received God's wisdom. And he put some of that wisdom to use by building the temple for God, one of the things that he is most famous for. And in the middle of 1 Kings, God interrupts the description of the building of this temple. And he says, concerning the house you are building, and then what's funny is that he says nothing about the temple. He says, if you will walk in my statutes, and obey my rules, and keep all my commandments, and walk in them, I will dwell among the children of Israel, and will not forsake my people. He's saying, it's not just about what happens here in this temple, in this place, Solomon. It's about you as well. It's about your heart. And if you know the life of Solomon, he did not end up walking in God's statutes. The temple that Solomon built was eventually destroyed. So the one who had the wisdom of God, we might say, what happened? Well, he built the temple of God. And we're told, as you heard, that it took him seven years to build the temple. And then he decided to build a a palace for himself. And it took him 13 years to build Now, these verses are back-to-back for a reason. They tell us something about Solomon's priorities. It wasn't just the length of time, almost twice as long, because his palace was also twice as big as God's temple. And this is when Solomon already had a palace, because King David lived in a palace. Remember, the reason why David wanted to build a temple for God in the first place was because he felt guilty that he had this gorgeous palace and God was dwelling in a tabernacle, a a big tent. So Solomon built something that he doesn't even need and he spent way more time on it than he did God's house. Now you might say, well, he spent way more time in his palace than he did in God's temple. Well, and to that you'd be right. But it was also a sign that showed Solomon was more concerned with the things of this earth. The wealth, the possessions, the things that God had told him he would receive on top of the wisdom that he had asked for. But Solomon began to stray from God. Exactly what God didn't want him to do and what he warned him of. And also about what the consequences would be. And that's exactly what happens. And there's no better picture for Solomon, I think, than the picture that he builds for his wife, Pharaoh's daughter. Now you might be thinking that he builds a palace for her, and, you know, he's just a pretty generous guy. But he built it for her because, as he said in Second Chronicles, my wife shall not live in the house of David, king of Israel, For the places to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. Now, what do you think that means? She can't stay in the palace, the temple of God where David dwelt. So what does that say about her? That if she gets too close to the Lord, either she's going to get struck down or God will. Not just because she's Egyptian, It's because she has rejected the Lord and she has worshipped false idols instead. Now you could easily ask of Solomon, the wise one, well then why did he marry her? Solomon is known for building the temple of God, an enduring legacy of his life. But his palace was a testimony to the fact that God wasn't a priority in his life. And Solomon is a picture of us having the wisdom of God, but being faced with the temptation to not live for God. Solomon's struggle isn't unique. We're all tempted to put something or someone as the main priority in our life over God. We live in this world as sinners and as saints. We understand that the purpose of God's temple, his church, And what happens here in this place? And we invest way more time and energy and money into things outside of this place. Not that that is a bad thing, investing your time and energy and money into things outside of this place. But we often begin to stray from God when we focus our wealth and our work and our play and our sports and all of those other things instead of God. We decide that we don't really need to dwell with God in his presence all that often. And we don't need to come and receive the blessings that he wants to give us here. But when we do, God blesses us all the same because he is God and he is good and he is gracious And he is loving and he gives us what we don't deserve. When our hearts are not focused on him, when our hearts are far away from him, he comes to us, just as Jesus did on earth in his death and resurrection. And he comes to us in the waters of baptism, just like he did with little Macy today, washing her clean, giving her forgiveness just like that water basin in the temple court. And we see the cross front and center in our worship, reminding us of Jesus's sacrifice, his body being nailed to the cross, his blood poured out for us for our forgiveness. Yet the cross, it's empty because Jesus rose from the dead. And that points to the truth that Jesus did defeat sin, death, and the devil once and for all. And his perfect sacrifice was complete. And that's why he lives. And because of that, we shall live also. And we will go on to eternal life in heaven. And we have an altar, just like in the temple courts. And we're reminded of Jesus' sacrifice again. And here he comes to us with his body, pours out his blood, bringing us forgiveness for our sins, strengthening our faith, giving us salvation in His supper. Now, Solomon's temple no longer exists, but we still get close to God, experience His presence through a temple. This new temple points to paradise and to the presence of God. And then in the gospel, you heard Jesus spoke about that temple that was going to be destroyed, His temple. Because Jesus is the new temple. He is the meeting place between God and humanity. He is how we retrace our steps back to Eden. He is the substitute sacrifice that God provided on Mount Moriah. He is the one who cleanses us from our sins, provides for our forgiveness. You can't experience God's presence. You can't get near to God Without Jesus, without his cleansing, and without his sacrifice. And Jesus dwells in you. And he builds you up as a spiritual house, a temple, if you will. And that's what Peter talks about. It's this fellowship of believers around God's word and his sacraments. This is how we get close to God. That's what the church is. Is Now, there are some people, and you've maybe even heard this phrase before, and they'll say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Or maybe somebody will say, well, I'm not really into organized religion. What they really mean is, I just want to do what I want and believe what I want and not have anybody else tell me otherwise. If this fellowship of believers, God's gathering of his people around his word and his sacraments, is the new temple where God dwells with us and blesses us, then not being here is a threat to your faith. And so what's going to happen is Satan will tell you that you can still have God without the church, that you don't have to abandon your faith if you don't go to church, that. You don't actually have to dwell with God. And if you do this and continue down that path, removed from God and his word and his sacraments, in his church, in his community, in that fellowship of believers, well, you might turn out like Solomon and have a legacy just like his. When your life comes to an end, people may remember some details about your life but they will remember what is most important to you. When they reflect on your life, what will they say is your real passion? Through Jesus' death and resurrection, through the Holy Spirit working in you, working faith in you, he makes your real passion him. And he keeps you coming to him to dwell with him, to be in his presence, where God's people gather, around his word and around his sacraments. And we get that in full measure today. And it's not covered in gold like Solomon's temple was, but it's even more precious. And that's what those little ones are who come to the waters of baptism. They are precious. They are precious in God's sight. They are chosen, holy, called out of the darkness into Christ's marvelous light. And that's what you, children of God, by faith are precious in His sight. And that's what your legacy is. Not who you are in the eyes of the world, but who you are in the eyes of God. And that is cleansed, forgiven, redeemed, worth dying for, because you are his precious child. Amen. And now the peace of God which passes all understanding... Guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.